So the story of our world, in fact, the story of our lives, begins in abundance. God creates day after day, calling forth life out of the seeming emptiness. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. It's this repeated line in Genesis 1. We hear it again and again. From the very beginning, God creates a world where life is just bursting out of the ground, bursting out of the emptiness. And as the story goes on, God calls Father Abraham and his many sons and daughters and kids, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Anybody know that one? Eh, maybe. Oh, we got one or two. Good. Well, Abraham's children are called to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. A blessing is this force of well-being that's active in the world, as we talked about last week. So, Christy, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. See, I grew up with this. I, apparently the rest of you didn't. Uh, but it involves all that we are, this being a blessing, being an active force in the world. But along the way, that the children of Abraham end up in Egypt. And last week, we felt that tension, didn't we, between Egypt's famine and Eden's abundance. And we saw how Pharaoh's scarcity infected even Joseph, because that's what the myth of scarcity does. It infects our hearts and our minds, and it closes off our imaginations and it eventually starts to affect our actions. So even Joseph ends up playing this huge role in spreading slavery over people throughout Egypt. So God ends up sending Moses to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh that the God of abundance has come to free the Israelites from this ideology of scarcity. And it takes a little bit of convincing of Pharaoh, doesn't it? But Yahweh won't accept no for an answer, and finally, ten plagues later, Pharaoh relents. But before Pharaoh will let them go, he says to Moses, First, lay your hands on me, because I need some of that abundant life that your God seems to always be giving to you and to your people. And so eventually then the people, they march out of Egypt. And if you know the story, there's a little setback at the Red Sea, at the new waters of chaos, the Red Sea is. But once again, the waters of death and emptiness are parted and dry land comes forth, just like it did in creation. And the people of God walk into a whole new life. And there, on the banks of the other side of the Red Sea, there is rejoicing and celebration, and they go marching out into the wilderness, and they are all excited. But this funny thing happens to them out in the wilderness. Actually, it's a, a rather normal thing. The celebration of their salvation fades, especially as the normal struggles of life come back into focus for them. And you know how that is, right? That initial excitement or joy of encountering God, it carries you for a time, but then life has this way of pulling you back. Like a spiritual high maybe you got from a summer camp when you were younger, it fades. Or like that deep love that you felt when you walked some aisle somewhere and you were baptized and you said yes to God's deliverance, there is joy and celebration on the banks of those baptismal waters. But when you start marching out into the rest of your life, well, the wilderness has a way of wearing on you, doesn't it? 
did for the children of Abraham. It's not too long before the joy and excitement of salvation is worn down by that grind in the wilderness. And when that happens, the old programs operating in their life, it just has this way of automatically taking over. So maybe you're back at school and you've got the same friend problems you did before and the same temptations and they pulled you back in. Or you're back at work and you've got the same boss and the same grind and the same pressures and they pull you back in. Or you're back home and you've still got the same wounds in your marriage and the same problems in your family and those patterns in you kick back in and eventually it starts to feel like nothing has actually changed for your life. Sure, you had this moment of salvation yeah, the, the sea of death was parted for you, and you're deeply grateful for that, but before too long, maybe a couple days, a couple months, maybe a few years, I don't know, but before too long, you look back and you start to think, wait, has anything actually changed in my life? That's what happens for the Hebrew children out there in the wilderness. After a while, their stomachs start grumbling, and then their mouths start grumbling, and then they start looking back to Egypt, and they, they start remembering just how good that lamb stew tasted after a long day's work in Egypt's slave factories. And they're looking around at the everyday grind there in the wilderness, and it doesn't seem like much has gotten really better for them. In fact, it may just be worse. We should have stayed in Egypt, they said to Moses. At least there we had something to eat. Out here... All we can see is emptiness. And of course, that's all they can see. But for us to recognize that what's actually going on here, we need to realize there, there's a pattern. There's a reason for that. They only see emptiness not because they are in the wilderness, but because for years and years now, their hearts and their minds and their imaginations were shaped by Egypt's myth of scarcity. Emptiness is all they have been trained to see. So sure, God saved them, and, and now maybe their setting looks a little different. They're in the wilderness instead of Egypt, but the way they see the world hasn't fundamentally changed. And the way they interact with one another has not fundamentally changed, because who they are has not fundamentally changed. You see, what we have in the wilderness wanderings is one of the most profound examples of why spiritual formation is so essential. And, so, and it's even seen, uh, this wilderness wanderings, as the classic paradigm for spiritual formation in the Bible. The wilderness wanderings for 40 years, it's a picture of how our life with God is so much more than a one-time decision. It is this journey. It's about our formation much more than even just crossing the Red Sea. And of course, yes, they had to cross the Red Sea. We need to walk through the waters of baptism. We need to get started and say yes to God's great invitation of salvation and new life. And it's good to celebrate that on the banks of the river of salvation. But by itself, it is not enough. The Hebrew children have to be reshaped. 
They have to be remolded in order to live out their salvations. In other words, their, their even imaginations, they have to be reprogrammed from the limiting myth of scarcity in order for them to see and live out into the expansive story of God's great abundance. Otherwise, they might as well go back to Egypt because they'll be living as if they were still in Egypt. And it's true for us as well. If we're not in this ongoing journey of becoming like Christ, that ongoing journey of having our hearts and our minds and our imaginations slowly transformed by God's goodness and grace, this ongoing journey of slowly being transformed into who God actually created you to be, then the chances are we're still just living under Egypt's power, even if we're not living in Egypt's land. The children of Abraham need to be reshaped. Their hearts and minds need some deep spiritual formation. And so that's actually what God sets out to do in really what is an incredibly creative way. That's what the manna in the story is actually all about. And I think it's easy for us to sort of misunderstand the manna the man is not just another showy miracle out in the wilderness. I mean, if, if God wanted a showy miracle, he probably would have put out a really big feast for them every day. It wasn't just about a flashy antic to fill their bellies, as important as that is. Now, now certainly God does want to care for them, and that's part of it, as any loving parent. But what God seems really interested in is reshaping their hearts. And the same is true for us. I mean, certainly God deeply wants to take care of you and of others as any loving parent would. But what God is really interested in is reshaping our hearts. Because what God is deeply interested in is your formation as a human being. Is you becoming all that God created you to be. So God helps them sets out to help them to begin to see ever so slowly that the world they are living in is a world that was created by Eden's abundance, and that the story of Egypt's scarcity is a lie that is infecting their soul. Now, it's not really easy to do this, to change how people see. Apparently, the ten miraculous plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, while those were awfully exciting, they don't change how the people see the everyday kind of stuff. And I think it's really in that everyday kind of living that God is most interested in, not just the flashy moments and spiritual highs, but that faithful grind of life. And so God sends them manna, but there's a really beautiful catch here. They are only supposed to gather enough manna for one day. And think about that for just a moment for them. I mean, imagine telling a people who have been hungry and running out of food, I'm going to set out a field full of food for you. And, and don't worry, I'm going to do it every day. You can trust me. Just don't take enough or any more than you need for just today, okay? Imagine telling people who've been poor slaves their whole lives, I'm going to set out all these riches for you. Just don't take anything but what you need for today. <laughs> kind of fat chance, right? Of course, they grab all they can. And the fastest and the strongest, the scriptures tell us, go out and they take even more, even if it means their slower, weaker neighbors have to try harder and end up with less. 
But two really beautiful miracles happen in the response to that. And, and neither of them, I think, are the miracle of the manna showing up in the first place. The miracles of this story are actually what happens after the manna shows up. In verse 17 and 18, it says that some gathered more and some gathered less. But when they measured it all out, those who thought they were getting ahead, grabbing up all the extra, didn't end up with a drop more. And those who thought they had gathered less and couldn't find enough had as much as they needed. And contrast that to last week. Remember Pharaoh and Joseph, what they did? They grabbed up all the people's money and all their livestock and all their land. And that gap between the one and the 99 grew dramatically more and more. But not here, not anymore, not with God's people. Out here in the wilderness, it didn't matter how hard you tried or how much you grabbed up. God wasn't going to let that gap shape God's people because God did not want them defined by the myth of scarcity. No matter how much they grabbed up or how little was left for the next guy, everyone ended up with the same daily bread. That's the first miracle of the manna. And don't miss just how miraculous that is because you and I know that's not how things normally work in our world, right? Everyone had enough. Everyone had the same. It's pretty miraculous. Now, the second thing that happened was a little less beautiful, but it was reinforcing the first. Moses told them, don't try to hoard God's abundance. Don't store it up for tomorrow. But of course, again, they were too shaped by the myth of scarcity to do otherwise. So of course, people tried to take extra and they were hiding it under their pillows and in their kitchen cupboards. And let's be honest, that's what we probably would have all done as well. Only it turned into worms overnight. And that's just kind of gross, right? Worms wiggling out from underneath their pillows and out of their kitchen pots and whatnot, and every place they tried to hoard God's abundance, it turned into worms. And, and so out there in the wilderness of formation, they could not save up to get ahead of the next guy and protect the future. They just had to trust in God for their daily bread every day. Now, to be clear here, I don't think that this story is telling us that it is bad or it is wrong to save or to be wise with our resources along the way. If that's as far as we go, it's kind of minimizing the deeper truths of the story. That, that literal connection might be missing the point. But here's what I do think the story is telling us. If we try to hide what we save from God, if we forget that all of it is from God's abundance. If we aren't holding it, all of it, always before God, then there's a good chance it's going to turn into worms. It's a sobering reminder that I think we need to hear again and again. All those things entrusted to us, they are not ours to cling to. They are God's. And the only way to keep them from turning into worms is to constantly be holding them before God with open hands. Is to constantly be offering them to God and using them as God would guide us, not as fear would guide us. Remember how Jesus put it in the great Sermon on the Mount, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy, but store up your treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
It isn't that God wants to keep good things from you. And I think sometimes we get that a little twisted. God doesn't want to keep good things from you, but God is deeply concerned about what's going on in your heart. For where your heart is, your treasure will be. Or where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And God doesn't want to see your heart get all rusty and eaten up with worms. And so I would say that the worms in the manna hidden away was the second great miracle of the story, precisely because it was the worms that was slowly setting their hearts free. Slowly, they were having to face the reality that, sure, they can work all they want. They can work like they're still slaves back in Egypt. They can try to store up all they can. They can live shaped by Egypt's narrative that more is always better than less. But when the morning comes, it's all turning to worms anyway. When the morning comes, it will just be you and God's goodness anyway. And learning that is a profound miracle. In fact, I think it's one of the hardest lessons of our lives to really internalize. And I say that because our culture all around us in living in this world of ours, we are so deeply programmed by the myth of scarcity, just like the children of Abraham were. I mean, I don't know about you, but on a good Sunday morning, I might recognize and hear the story of God's abundance in the Bible. But every day, day in and day out, I see an ad that tells me I probably need to upgrade my phone and a new Apple Watch would sure make my life easier. And it might be really nice to have a little bit bigger house or a nicer car. On a good Sunday, I recognize and hear the story of God's abundance, but every week, all week long, I hear the myth of scarcity on social media that tells me I might be missing out, that everyone else is having more fun than I am, and they have more friends than I do, so I guess what I have and what I do and who I am is, isn't really enough. Brueggemann says that even as the world's resources have been pouring into the United States for decades now, our nation, and as our nation has grown more and more wealthy, money has become a kind of narcotic for us. We are addicted to always needing more and more. We have this love affair with it. In fact, he goes so far as to say that consumerism and the way that it's practiced in our society it's not simply a marketing strategy. It's become a demonic spiritual force among us. That's powerful words. Consumerism and the way that it's practiced in our particular society has become a demonic spiritual force. Which is to say then that our hearts and minds have become enslaved by it even though we don't recognize it most of the time. And so of course, Trusting in God's abundance has become one of the hardest spiritual lessons of our lives. I can only imagine how hard it would have been for the children of Abraham out there in the wilderness to only collect one day's worth. But that's what their souls needed to do day after day after day 
after day. They had to practice waking up in the morning to God's great abundance and then going to bed at night just hoping, trusting that it would be there again in the morning. You see, I don't think we actually learn God's abundance by just being told, hey, don't worry, there's going to be enough, there's enough to go around, God will provide. The only way we really learn it is by practicing it. And so out of deep love for the children of Abraham, that's exactly what God makes them do day after day. For 40 years in the wilderness, they had to practice taking their daily bread. I can hardly fathom that. I mean, every night, every night practicing this trust that God's abundance will meet them in the morning. It was a 40-year daily spiritual formation practice. And I I really think that's an important invitation for us all. There are some things, some deep soul truths and some practices that we don't get to stop. There's some practices that we need to learn as children, but we learn them in a different way as teenagers, and and we kind of learn them in a very different way as parents. And then I think we learn them in in a very different way as grandparents. And then I think we learn them in a fuller way in the very last stages of life. And I think this is one of them. It's why in our normal rhythm of worship, we have an offering, and at the end of our offering, we sing what? In the Lord, I will be ever grateful. It's a way of practicing generosity and gratitude and trust and God's abundance and holding it all with open hands before God. I mean, sure, we we partly give because we know that The church that we deeply care about can't operate without all of us participating and all of us making financial commitments. That's essential. But really, there's something so much deeper going on here. We give because our parents and our grandparents taught us and because the disciples and Jesus taught us that giving our money is a practice that frees our souls. And it's a practice that actually helps us to discover God's abundance. And after a long, long time of all that practicing and all that daily bread, we eventually discover that it's been through that practice that we have been walking to the promised land. In other words, the practice of holding our resources open before God, however God would lead us to use them week after week, it's the practice that will guide us to the land of abundance, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask that you would take us there. Help us to practice this in every sphere of our lives, of trusting you with all of it. Free us from the chains of fear that want to pull us back in, to Egypt's scarcity. Help us to learn to trust that this world is so full of your life that it's pulsing around us and everything. Grant us hearts and imaginations big enough to see the manna coming from heaven all around us. We ask this in the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.